So today we're building on the same topic we've been exploring previously. So we were looking at design research, but we were doing it from the perspective of hospitals. And today we'll push that boundary a little bit further and the scope of that, expand it, and you're going to see just how in a few moments. But first of all, let me introduce to you our guest today. Peter Weeks is a senior people researcher leading design research at Philips Design's Pittsburgh Studios. His daily work includes evangelizing and practicing design thinking in the healthcare space. And most often that's around challenges that people face when um, we're looking at sleep and breathing. Now, Peter is a frequent guest lecturer on design research and design thinking methods at the two big universities here, so Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh. He also loves experimental cooking, being a dad to two little thinkers, and uncovering frameworks for viewing the world around us through collaborative discussion. You're listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm your host, Karina Paraskeev. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. So what we saw in the previous episode was how healthcare can really happen in the hospital in terms of design, right? So healthcare design with doctors, with surgeons, with nurses. But when I think of healthcare, I also think of all the dimension that's not within the hospital. People go to work, they have families, they... Uh, go out and healthcare is really this everyday thing inside but mostly outside of the hospital yeah yeah I, I think about it in terms of sort of like a continuum of care um, and especially when you're you know and that can be you know, preventative stuff um, it can be just daily life and healthy living then maybe something starts to go wrong and you are diagnosed uh, maybe there's an acute event and you're in a highly clinical setting or a doctor's office right and then you come home from that um, maybe at the end of life you're in managed care or something along those lines. Um, the, the common thread in all of it is that, is that, that person who's going through that, that experience, right? Um, we call it the, the continuum of, the health continuum of Phillips, right? Um, and try to think of like, well, what are the opportunities to help people at every step of, of the way? Um, but when you are outside the clinical setting, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very different. Um, I think part of that is the number of variables that you're dealing with, right? So you have, you know, think about taking care of somebody in a hospital. Um, one person said to me once, they're like, all right, so I was in the hospital and I had collectively 100, 150 years of professional experience surrounding me in the week I was there, right? Nurses who've been 30 years on the job, you know, doctors who've trained, and specialists who've trained for years and years in school and have been practicing for all this time. And then I went home and it was just me. And my daughter called me sometimes. You know, and we felt abandoned. We felt, you know, so the, there's a lot of challenges outside of those those care settings when people are trying to to figure this out for themselves. Um, you know, the, there's care that just happens in you know the day to day, and then the post acute care. I think is this huge, huge area in healthcare, right? So hospitals are getting dinged for a number of different ways when people return, and so if somebody has a severe respiratory event or a cardiac event, or something like that, right? Um, the hospital does what they do; they send them out. That person's back in 30 days there's huge penalties turns out like most of those it's like half of the, the returns the readmissions come in like days one two three right maybe somebody just got scared maybe they had uh, they were discharged with the wrong stuff or they couldn't pick up their meds you know all sorts of things can go wrong um i think the majority of people then are back by like day 16. right so when we say 30 days it's actually that that period right afterwards because people are, are kind of left on their own um 
you know, a lot of healthcare, I think we call people patients, and I really, really hate that term because they're not patients. You know, it's sort of the trying to make turn somebody into something that fits your view from a medical practitioner's perspective. Um, but it's never more apparent than when somebody's in their home. They're just people, just mom, you know, or my wife or me or whatever, right? We're we're just people um, trying to navigate some pretty scary uh, situations. Um, and I think the mindsets that people have when it comes to sort of like consumerization in healthcare um, change depending on what's going on, like anybody, right? Like, so you have um, somebody just after an acute event, they come discharged from the hospital, they come home, they might be um, looking for more information. They might be willing to accept more change in their lives. They might be um, uh, eager for support and help, but catch them a year later or a year before and they're asking you, why should I make any changes? Where am I seeing the value of that? Where am I seeing the benefit of that? Um, we, healthcare, and I, I think this is particular to America. I don't know how far this extends. You know, it's just sort of our kind of scurry system with, with um, insurance and stuff. But we, we approach healthcare with a real like loss aversion uh, mindset. It's the whole prospect theory thing, right? This idea that like um, the, the gain that we get, if I gave you a dollar, Right, you're gonna be like, oh, thanks, Pete, for the dollar. If I took a dollar away, you get really mad, like that was my dollar. Why'd you take my dollar? You know, there's evolutionary roots in this, and yet um, I think it applies very much to the, the way we experience like kind of any any consumption that we're doing, and especially in healthcare, because we have the, we come at it with this weird angle of like, um, I paid for that, or my insurance was supposed to cover that. If you tell somebody, um, you know, Nikes are on sale, two hundred bucks, you know, they're psyched to buy the you know, lineup around the corner to pay 200 bucks. If you say you broke your ankle, and in order to play basketball again, you're gonna have to wear this boot, and it's going to um, help you heal. Uh, and it costs 200 bucks, people are mad, <laughs> you know? It's gonna heal your ankle so you can play basketball again, and yet people are upset that you know, they're, they have to fork over money for something that they didn't want anyway. You see this a lot in chronic care too. Um, and it changes attitudes and mindsets. Um, it, it's a really interesting point that you bring here because you're designing for an experience that at the core is not a happy experience. I mean, mm -hmm. most products, if you go into um, you know, the, the retail consumer type of market, when you're designing, you're designing for little delightful moments, right? And here you are, you're facing basically an experience where someone broke something or someone's not feeling well or someone's kid isn't doing too great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I was uh, talking to some people who have um, a, a, a breathing condition. Um, it actually is a very common breathing condition. It affects 24 million people and globally is impacting you know, hundreds of millions, right? So um, they have to wear uh, a mask at night to sleep and a, a device helps them breathe um, through the evening so they can, they can stay healthy. Um, and we were talking about like, well, what kind of information would you want? What, what kind of data would you want to see? Would you want, um, and I was, I was just trying to frame, like what's the right way to think about this? I'd seen the, um, the Aura Ring had come out recently. It's a health tracker that's a different kind of format. It's a, um, a ring that can track, you know, heart rate and all these other good things, activity. And they had this brilliant, when they came out, they had this brilliant way of, of framing up how you're doing. And it was about readiness. I just love that. Readiness kind of implies this notion of, of value, that like, all right, I'm ready for the day, I'm all these things. Um, and so I sat down with some people who were managing their sleep apnea with these devices, and I said, well, how about this? How about if your machine can help you understand how ready you are? And they said, no, that's a terrible idea. You're, what am I supposed to do about that? I had a bad night's sleep, and you're telling me I'm not ready. Like, I'm just mad at you now. Like, don't tell me I'm not ready. Don't tell me, I didn't want this in the first place, right? It, it really reflects that idea that you have, um, uh, you know, you have to do this stuff, 
but we, we approach it traditionally from this mindset of something's wrong and you're trying to fix it. I think the real challenge in healthcare outside the hospital especially is to frame it as not fixing problems, but as enhancing, making it a part of a broader health story. Um, I think what that can do is just huge, right? Because take, take like stigma. Um, if somebody's got um, a respiratory condition, their lungs don't work, like COPD, and they need to wear an oxygen um, concentrator, a cannula that goes to your nose that you carry around with your portable oxygen all day is this clear signal that I'm not healthy. I scare my grandchildren. People talk about being at the grocery store and having a coughing fit. And strangers coming up to them and be like, are you okay? And you say, I'm fine, leave me alone. I'm, I'm not a sick person. I'm, I'm just Pete. I'm just me. You know, I don't want you to see me as a sick person. Um, and you can design those delightful moments to try to make, I don't know, make the equipment nicer. And we do that at my work in Phillips, you know, and lots of other great providers are trying to do the same thing. Um, you can design the systems to be maybe less obvious, whatever. But you can also maybe reframe the conversation and say, this isn't about you know, fixing my problem because I'm weak and broken, but I am somebody who's healthy and I'm taking care of myself and really celebrate that. I was talking to this, um, this person once, um, where is the house, just chatting about um, uh, sleep apnea, right? He's kind of squirming in his chair. He's a little bit uncomfortable talking about it. He's kind of ashamed. He's talking about the confidence you know, the, the, the hit to his confidence that he feels um, with his partner and how it, it just didn't feel right. And then he said something um, where he started talking about uh, fitness and losing weight. And in fact, by having the energy from managing sleep apnea, he was able to go to the gym and, and start losing weight. And he beamed with pride because he'd lost 40 pounds. It was a socially celebrated thing to have done that. And yet managing this other health condition, which enabled that thing, was still stigmatized. Right, so in, in, when you're outside the hospital, the rules change and you're in these different norms. Um, I think there's a, a real opportunity to kind of shape that conversation and celebrate people being healthy um, and help them not feel like they're you know, just, just uh, broken. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the one thing that it does come to mind when you're talking about that is the design thinking process itself often stems from what we call pain points, right? So we're looking at where the issues are so that we mm -hmm. can make the experience better. And that's something that's quite striking in terms of when I hear you talk, because yeah, we want to design something that people will be excited by, but the starting point is that thing that they don't really like. How do you manage that sort of transition or is there a way to transform those workshops initially so that they are about the things you speak about? Um. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think, yeah, you can look at pain points, but it's, um, you know, that look if you if you kind of frame them as opportunities, right? It's it's not that like this is the problem, and we're going to solve it. It's like there's usually if you do your laddering and you ask why why why, you can get well, why is that even the case that that's a problem, um, and in some cases you can design whole systems, really shape systems, so that as opposed to just individual nodes of your um, interaction, so that. You can reframe the entire challenge so it's not a pain anymore. You can avoid it altogether, or you can find moments of delight within those that that kind of like lessen lessen the pain they feel. It's one of the tools of service design, um, a, a really powerful skill set that just tries to look at whole systems um, and all the stakeholders as they're interacting across an experience, um, and then look at what are all these supporting mechanisms. And you realize there's like these pain points everywhere. If you stop at that, if you stop at like okay, we're going to knock out this pain point in this node. Um, I think you miss a larger opportunity to try and reshape that whole system. Um, and so you can do some stuff that's about, you know, if you really figure out like what at the core is the need, um, which is the strength of, I think, people research and, and need finding, um, 
you, you end up with like your beacon. You say, we need to get here. And the way we're doing it is one way, and there's some pain points along that path. Um, and you maybe envision other ways altogether to try to you know, achieve that, that goal, to resolve those needs, um, or reframe needs, or identify needs people didn't know they had that are actually more priorities, and then shoot for those so you make the other stuff not even matter anymore. Um, you can use these tools of design to help understand those landscapes. Um, and then sometimes it's not about just like checking off pain points, it's about reframing the entire opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I, I hope that kind of answered yeah. the question. <laughs> and, and, and since we're on that topic, when you're designing for people, right? Um, I'm looking at personas in, in, in one way because when they're in the hospital, it seems fairly simple, right? Like uh, to some extent, you could say there's different categories of patients and there's these personas. But the second you step out the door and you become, you know, that real person, the variety of, you know, the character traits and all these things that maybe in the day to day, there's less processes around you. So you're, I guess, more free to be fully yourself than compared to when you're you know, constrained to a hospital bed mm -hmm. and that's your experience, right? There's, there's much less control. So how does designing, you know, for experiences for people that are so broad, how do you, how do you go about that in the, in the consumer health? Yeah, um, so the approach that we take, and it is applicable to hospitals as well, because even though people are, maybe they've given themselves over, they still feel the things that they feel, um, but especially outside the home. I, I hate personas. I hate personas because they're static. And the way that, I think they are often used is give me a persona or give me the three personas I need to design for. And you create a little story, you pull together some vignettes and you go, okay, it's Carol, she's 52, has a dog and a daughter and um, likes, I don't know, whatever, skiing. Like that, that, that's, that's nice, but that's not gonna help you um, really understand what's motivating, what's driving it, except for the little paragraph of text that creates a, a story. I much prefer to think of mindsets and I'd rather reflect not a, a, a persona, but like a little picture of a, stock art person, you know, stock photo person, but rather um, sort of a, a range of ways that people think about a certain context. Um, when you do that, you appreciate that people are dynamic, not static, and that they move among those mindsets depending on what's going on. And it invites you to start to think about, well, what are the catalysts that might move somebody from one mindset to another, right? Like the, the question of like, well, you could be totally complacent in this, or you could be really open to, to taking on new solutions, or you could be angry there aren't better solutions for you. It's an actual framework that I use a lot in some of the work we're doing around chronic health care. Um, so do you see it like a spectrum that people can move from one end to another and go through different... It's more of a, like a circle in some cases. Sometimes it's it's not as uh, linear. linear. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, but just appreciating that people will have different mindsets in different contexts, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that the way you approach them when they're kind of resigned, complacent, settled, is going to be different than the way you approach them when they're, you know, really eager um, or then when they're just kind of open and generally curious. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at consumer stuff, people people do this, you know, if you, um, you know, a, a, a Volkswagen might sell a car based on how um, it'll get you and your friends together and it's all about belonging and the adventure you're gonna have, or they'll sell it based on it's safe and it's gonna keep your family from, like, we appreciate that people, the same car can be sold to people with different mindsets, the same person who has different mindsets at different times. Um, and in healthcare, when we reduce people to just being a patient and kind of say, oh, well, they're a patient, they need this, of course they're gonna wear it. Like, that's, that's why you have 50% drop-offs and adherence on things. That's why people aren't taking their meds, that's why they're not using their devices. Um, if you can kind of say, well, what is it that really matters to them in the different mindsets and realize that you have to grow with people, you have to offer them multiple ways to access that, um, that motivation. Um, 
I think you you can design much richer experiences that increase your adherence, that really help to help people help themselves, if that makes sense. You know, there's a hundred reasons not to do something you don't want to do, um, but if, if you can kind of be with people as they shift their mindset, um, you can always be speaking to them in a language that's going to resonate. Yeah. Um, now, if you look at people and data, because a lot of this these days, you know, health can be managed in part by getting a better knowledge and a very better grasp on how you're doing, what you can improve, yeah. um, tracking, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that space in, in consumer health? Yeah, yeah. I think there's um, certainly a desire from the clinical world and the population health world to the, this assumption that when we have the data, we'll know what to do. You know, I hear from doctors, they say, you know, I wish I had a window into the home because once they leave my care, I don't know what happens if they're doing the thing I asked them to. Um, we rely on um, sort of other parties, other stakeholders within the system to provide that care. Um, people like the, the equipment providers, people like the home health agencies and, and whatnot, but their reimbursements are getting cut. They're having a harder time staying profitable while, while providing that, that care. And so um, more of that burden is placed on the people at the end of that, the, the folks who you're trying to care for. Um, and so, yeah, who, who gets the data? Who wants that data? Um, does somebody, what, what mindset do they have to be in to make sense of it? How do you present it to them um, differently for different mindsets? Um, you know, there's, there's different uh, mindsets we found with uh, certain chronic states. You know, some people who like take it on as their hobby. I'm gonna fight this and I want all that data. I really wanna know, I wanna dig into it. And other people who are just kinda like, you know, I just wanna live my life. They need very different ways of presenting that same information. So it's great if you can capture it, you can capture it, you can create amazing experiences that make people want to engage to take that survey on the smartphone they may have um, or step on that connected scale or use the sort of internet of things, health devices to, to provide better information, maybe even better therapy. Um, so you can, you, know, you can get all that, but then how do you feed that back to motivate people to, to care for themselves? How do you use that then to inform the clinical decisions and therapy decisions made in the hospital, in the, you know, primary care, wherever it might be. Um, I think that's all playing out right now. You see people acquiring all sorts of different uh, companies that are able to get the data. Um, the, the way that it's presented back to people often comes back as like a score, right, or something like that. I think it's pretty immature at this point. And we're gonna be, continue to do a lot of, of learning as to like, how do you make that mean something for, um, <laughs> how do you make it mean something for the patients or their caregivers, how do you think it means something for the doctor who only has like eight minutes with a patient who's like, I don't have time to look at your charts. I was in Japan talking to this doctor um, and we were trying to figure out like, okay, well, if we had all this information, we gave it to you. He's like, what am I supposed to do with it? I, he's like, I have seven minutes most with my patients all day. Like, I don't have time to figure it out. You need to tell me what to do about that. Um, so then you look at how do we, uh, how, how does the, the healthcare community, the health technology community, you know, start to make sense of that for people and the different purposes. How do you connect across all the things going on? Because you see a lot of silos still, right? Like the data from your cardiologist isn't going to your endocrinologist, isn't going to your pulmonologist, and um, you know, EMRs are still scattered. You have all these little challenges, right? Throughout the system where everything's um, a, bit, a bit fragmented, right? Um, I, I think the, the art of piecing all that together in meaningful ways that, that helps people, that helps people engage and care about their health um, will be, sort of the, the next step that we have to take. Definitely, I think the sense-making is, is one of the biggest yeah, challenges. Yeah, it's a great way to say it. Because data is data is data, but at the end, of, it doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah. 
a nice thing with it though that, that's cool that um, people are starting to do even in my organization uh, are sort of like designing with data you know so think about like a sculptor you can with clay right you can understand the clay you can understand the science of the clay you can but when you start playing with it and moving it and seeing what it can do you start to see all altogether new like superpowers that you can get um, and so the ability to use design tools to, to visualize information in new ways and uh, whatever is, is really uh, kind of cool and that's an emerging field that that'll be exciting too because all of a sudden we're gonna go oh wait we thought the data was able to do this it turns out it can do so much more um, and then you want to connect that back into the experience people are having with it on the clinical end on the, the receiving end of it um, and make sure it's the stuff that's you know really resonating with the, the stuff they care about that's gonna make a difference for them yeah and I think it's interesting because when you say there's so many different uh, mindsets or ways to be where you might want one interface one day and another one might yeah. answer your answers the next day I think it's a new dynamic in terms of product design because uh, previously we had one product and you know we might have product lines but it was essentially different products right mm -hmm. and now we're talking about maybe data as a product you could have that core product that is modular and you could basically say the expression of this data will take different shapes as we get to know people better as we get to understand their mindsets and maybe give them control to have the right kind of access to their data depending on that mindset or, or that point where they're at in, in their process. Sure. Yeah, and engage them in different ways, right? Like one of the things that, like I, I don't know how relevant this is with like the newer versions of these, but like when um, Fitbits came out, it was something like 75% of them were in a drawer in a month, right? You bought that because you were going to lose weight at New Year's or you were getting ready for your daughter's wedding and you wanted to, you know, mm. uh, fit into your tux. Like and then that event happens or you kind of lose motivation and this thing's not really relevant to you anymore. I think when health tech companies are designing people like they're gonna use our thing all the time forever. <laughs> um, I love this idea of like like really appreciating the humanity of it, right? Like understanding people's experience, understanding their drivers, and, and building in the ability for like graceful exits and you know reintroductions. Oh yeah. You know, the what like elegance in that in that interaction, that you're building a brand relationship. That's what brand is, but it's a relationship and that they're you know, you'd say, Hey, it's okay. You it's the holidays. Go nuts, you know, right. and call me when when you need help. It's it's being a partner rather than a coach. Mm -hmm. I hate coaches. Does anybody <laughs> does anybody any grown adult that's not like an Olympian or an athlete have um, have coaches? I mean, I'm, I'm sure they exist. I don't want to right. prove that. But I guess what I'm saying is like, if you ask a room of people who go, okay, we need a coaching app. We're gonna tell people what to do. It's like, how many of you have a coach? How many of you want somebody telling you what to do? What you want is like a buddy who's really good, who knows what they're doing. Who can say, oh, hey, try, try this. See, see if that works for you. Mm -hmm. Puts you in charge. Who puts you in the driver's seat? Yeah. Um, who doesn't approach you as a, a, a patient or a ward or a victim, but as a, an empowered person? You know, mm -hmm. I don't want to be my disease. I don't want to be my, you know, in the hospital. I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, that's how I'm treated in my, you know, gown and everything else. And then when I'm home, I certainly don't want that. I'm a grandfather and, a, uh, you know, a brother and. A, Netflix watcher. I'm all these things that aren't patient, right? Um, I think we can start to appreciate that and then, um, you know, appreciate the nuances of all of that. It's, it's incredibly accessible because we all feel that. We put ourselves in those shoes. Um, and then we can, you know, maybe design better tools uh, that increase what we call adherence or compliance, right? Because we're kind of walking with people. Yeah, that's a very good mindset. Um, I just want to backtrack two seconds because I think it's very relevant and interesting that you brought up Fitbit and Nike and all these um, smartwatches. And I think we, we spoke about this last time, but uh, about 10 years ago, right? I went to, I think it was California, yeah, and it was um, on the stage, there were all those 
pioneers that had just gotten out the smartwatches, right? And Nike was one of them, and they, they were saying that one of the first iterations that they put out had this tool that people could run, go run, and if their boss or whoever called, they would see it on their wrist. And this is a feature that now in the third generation only appeared, but way back when, when that was actually their first iteration, and it completely failed because, as you said, the, the use case was not, people said, I'm going out, I want to run and forget all about my job, and now you're bringing by my, my boss in the middle of, of my run, right? Right. And it was really interesting because what they were trying to um, describe, and I think you're, you're part of that trend in, in some way too, is they were saying, we now have to design for product category and not for a product. And that's quite different because it's use cases that have never really been engineered or thought about. It's, it's nascent. And people might not be able to tell you, I want this or that because mm -hmm. they can't imagine it. And yet you're shaping that whole future in a sense, right, of, of that tool that you're building with data. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, you use the design approach to do it or any of the innovation stuff. It's all about iteration. It's about constantly trying to connect back into the um, populations, the segments you're trying to serve to understand, okay, was this really your, you're calibrating both the target because you're going like, we, we think this is your need. And then you go out with something and they go, oh yeah, now that you show me that, eh, it really wasn't my need. It's this other thing. So you're always calibrating that and then evolving what you're, what you're creating. I don't think that stops. I, I think because people's needs are always changing and their expectations are changing, certainly. Um, and so, you know, you, you just have to engage in a constant conversation around it. Um, you know, where we are with data right now and privacy, I personally, like, I've got my brakes on when it comes to that type of stuff, smart homes and whatever else. In the healthcare space, maybe there's a little bit more of an incentive to, um, to share that, but what are companies doing to really build trust? Because you see it shattered left and right. Some people care and some people don't, I don't know. But it, it's, um, I think we're going to see that that hopefully conversation really being at the forefront, I think it is for many people. Um, right now, many people don't understand what it means, right, when they're using these data collection tools? Right, right. But I, at least in the last year, you start to hear about, you know, ethics and data use and design and capture, right? And um, a, a little more awareness. And you have, um, you know, regulations in the EU that are kind of encouraging people globally to take a look and go, oh, shoot, how do we, how do we be clearer about what we're doing. Um, I think all that's going to be really Im important because in that, you know, if it's a relationship that I have with a company, like, core to any relationship is some sense of trust. Um, and if you're violating that trust, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up breaking the relationship. And the end result of that is people aren't getting the care that they need. Uh, the, you know, the, the importance in the health space, I think, is even more, is even higher than, you know, maybe in the generalized fitness space or the sort of entertainment and convenience space. So um, it's one I hope to see healthcare really at the forefront of. I know it's top of mind where I work that we're, you know, uh, really trying to, to tackle that head on. And, and I know there's um, so many people in the space just trying to say like, how do you, how do you navigate this responsibly? Um, and I think the challenge then is how do you navigate it responsibly and not throw the brakes all the way on, on innovation? Because you, you still want to be able to iterate and you know, define that, that better future where we're helping people. Um, you just have to walk out maybe a little more deliberately when you're trying to do it safely. To, to some degree, you're also dependent on your competitors, right? Or on, uh, you know, tangent field, because if they mess that up for you, people are not going to say, oh, this is this brand, this is that brand. They're just going to say, oh, data and health, not a good idea to share. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 
Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if I have much more to say on that. It's like, you know, it's um, collectively, you know, you want to see industries kind of working to tackle those types of things. Yeah, and I think the first movers, and that, that's the thing when you're developing a um, product category as opposed to just the product, is you're also building the, the road for everybody else. Because if you're paving a road of trust and you're kind of establishing that, which, which wasn't really defined in the industry, that gives you a leg up, but then it also rises everyone else in, in that industry mm -hmm. to be able to then say, okay, yeah, we can build on those standards and, and make it progress. Yeah, here's a model how that can work. Yeah, absolutely. And that happens in the health, you know, in the clinical space, you know. I always come back to like, you know, when you're designing, people are talking about like population health, right? Or they're talking about these big, big themes and big issues and health systems, you know, these, you know, amazing CEOs of these amazing health systems doing incredible things. They talk about technology and yada, yada. And I always think about like, you know, somebody named like Mike or like Anne, who's the nurse on the ward who has to like implement this new workflow or uh, who's at home and they're taking care of their dad and they have to convince him to wear this watch. Like, what is it that we're giving them to convince their dad to wear this watch all the time, to sleep with this patch on, to, you know, stand on the scale and not eat the thing. Like, th these are kind of challenges that have always been around. Um, and I think by really understanding the challenges at that level, all, all the way through, right? Because you need to understand the, the big systems level, but really getting down to the minutia to, to help people understand the role in it, to feel ownership over it, to feel um, agency in it, that they can, they can really make a difference. Um, I, I, you have to get to that level. Um, to understand their fears around data and privacy, and over, over uh, understand those, and then you know, um, help them not have those fears by doing the right thing and by, by taking care of that. Um, but uh, but if it if it stays at you know too high a level, which it often does when a bunch of smart people are in a meeting and you're talking to key opinion leaders who are you know geniuses in their fields, but a bit disconnected maybe from the lived experience on the floor day to day, um, you you risk you know making stuff that people can't use or won't. Um, so I think that's the power of people research really is like get into the cracks, get into the, get into the details, go into the, the, the smallest box of the service blueprint um, and really figure out what's going on there. What's the language you're using to communicate? What's the script that that um, uh, support center that's calling somebody to help make sure they're managing their health right is, is saying, how are they speaking with people? How are they reflecting their cultural needs, their, um, uh, you know, their personal needs? And, and how, how can we make sure to... Um, you know, support the whole person, not just the, the patient and the one clinical condition, condition out of six that we happen to care about. So. I think systemic thinking here is really key because what you're saying is we're not just inserting something you know, at that specific point, we're actually always inserting it within the context of a mental model, um, of an ecosystem, mm -hmm. of you know, processes that exist. And I think that's very specific to healthcare because to some degree, other industries too, they, they do implement themselves in broader context. But in healthcare specifically, there's never, there's such an interdependency between things. Whenever you add a new anything, an in, in invention process uh, actor, right? You've just shifted, you know, the waters a bit there. Yeah, yeah. And it's neat to try and unpack, you know, it's a fun game, to, <laughs> game exploration to play. To say, well, what are the? Um, how do the? How does that set of mindsets shift at home? How does that set of mindsets shift in the clinical setting? What should it be versus what it is? What and where it is now? Um, how can you shape a clinical space to better support those to get better outcomes? How can you shape the relationship with somebody outside the hospital to, to get that? Um, and and yeah, it, it, there's there's tons of work that can be done there. I think a lot of opportunity to improve care for people. 
So before I shift uh, gears here, mm-hmm. tell me about how data uh, is related to clothing. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We were talking last time and I just stumbled upon uh, this, um, this idea of like, I wear clothes in I have, like a closet full of them more than anybody needs and I have clothes for every context right if I'm going to a wedding I've got a suit and if I have going to the beach I've got a bathing suit very different suits <laughs> you know I've got um, clothes for working in the garden I have clothes for exercise I have clothes for coming to work I have clothes for a big meeting versus a day where I'm just cranking at my desk um, and I'm I'm trying to reflect the context and what I want to share with people um, in each of those as culturally appropriate you know some places you know, full burqa is, is appropriate, and other places a bikini is appropriate. Maybe for different people or different cultures, but like these are drastically different ways of, of sharing you. We don't have that same nuance with data right now, right? Somebody said to me yesterday as I was kind of talking about this, they're like, "Well, what's the difference between you, you have a different thing on Facebook than you do on LinkedIn?" And I said, "I I might post different things, but I probably have the same level of awareness about what's happening with my data and how it's being used and how I'm protecting it." I, you know, kind of going into change settings and things like that on those, you know, in that world to like deliberately really understand what's going on, um, or to demand feedback on like how is this being used? And I don't think it's just about awareness. It's sort of about this like cultural, but you know, how how is it as a culture are we defining what's appropriate in those spaces, and then sort of collectively enforcing that um, when something breaks taboo, that can be a good thing. That can be a great thing. Um, but is it happening deliberately? Where where are we? I don't know. It's, I, I think it's a, a in in a lot of areas we're totally illiterate, right? Wonderful thing about the last you know millennia is that we most people you know, got a chance to learn to read, and that's awesome. Many people are really great at it. Um, before the, you, you went to the monks, and they they did all the reading and writing for everybody, and you know through you know all sorts of great technological and educational advances, you know most people can read a stop sign and a book and whatever. That's that's awesome. We do not have that kind of health literacy, right? When we, it's the same way, you know, some people have some financial literacy. Leave the accountants to the, you know, the, the heavy lifting sometimes. Um, I don't think we're, we're even there yet when it comes to health. We're just kind of basically illiterate. Um, and we rely on the professionals to tell us, you know, what to do. And, and, and then we kind of go back and, okay, I guess I'll just follow along maybe. Um, I think we need to at least get to the level where we can, you know, TurboTax our own stuff and then go to the professionals for the serious things. I think with data, it's it's very similar. Data and healthcare, especially, like, like where does that fit into that story? What do I? What can I assume ownership over? What should I understand in that? Um, personally, I'm, I'm totally illiterate when it comes to that. Maybe a little bit more so on the health front because I work in the field, um, but not nearly to the level that uh, I think we all could be. I think you, you start to see like major changes in the, the healthcare system when people just know basic care you have some the ability to provide yourself with frontline preventative care or whatever right like that would be that would be amazing um, as far as the, the data part goes like feeling confident and safe in that like um, knowing when it's appropriate to show what you know and be able to protect it and avoid you know potential long-term downsides that we don't even know about yet um, I think I think that's all part of a conversation that isn't happening necessarily. Um, that that could be really healthy for us for a healthcare system. You know, you know, yeah. That oh, idea. Sorry, it's a little bit of a, of a stretch there, but it, it all ties together in my head somehow. It, it does. It does <laughs> for us too. Um, all right, so we'll end with just a little. I wanted to give a little um, gift, if we might, to people because I think part of what makes your job really special is it's about to some extent collaboration because you. 
as an individual can maybe make sense of certain things or see patterns that others don't, um, especially if you come out um, from outside, quote unquote, you're not, you change climbs from, from one project to another. So you, you bring in that perspective, right? But at the end of the day, no change ever happens because one person saw something or decided something. Mm-hmm. And concurrently with this, you can't control always the attitude, the mindsets, the, the way things work around you. You have to adapt to every situation. So I wanted to take maybe a, a little sneak peek at if you have to give a toolbox to people and say, here's how you can become a great collaborator. How can you work, no matter what the environment is, no matter how hostile or receptive or um, regulated or you know, free-flowing it is, to really make an impact? What would you tell them? Yeah. Um, I think there are some good traits to bring to it. Um, I'll often preface a conversation with colleagues of, you know, we need to have humility to know that we don't know everything. We have to have curiosity to really drive us to be motivated to, to learn those things. Um, I think I think that's like if you have those two, you've got a great start. Um, there's I mean there's all sorts of techniques to to better collaborating. Um, that's that's all a company is, right? It's a bunch of people kind of working together and trying to sort it out. You know, any entity, right? You're all trying to work it out together. Um, I think if you have that trust and this notion of like we're on the same team, um, that can be really powerful. My, my my buddy got married, and that's on the inside of their wedding bands. This idea of we're on the same team. Like always remember we're on the same team, and you can get into it with people when you're collaborating. You can. Some of my favorite fights I've ever had were with my best friends as we're posting, you know, what's the future of this service thing, and how are we going to make it happen, and you know, it's this, and no, you're wrong, it's that, you know, we're like, and then we're high-fiving at the end of it because we kind of broke through to some other aha, because we always had that trust, that even though we, we were um, going out about, you know, trying to push different ways, we were, were trying to get somewhere together. Um, and so those, those I think, are, are great. There's a, a brilliant toolkit in just sort of the design thinking world for how to, how to collaborate. A, a hundred, you know, there's zillions of great facilitators out there who can help navigate conversations, who can help um, define steps that help people articulate things. So say I'm trying to collaborate with um, somebody who's suffering from a condition, right? When I'm doing a research project, and I'm in their living room, and I'm just sitting there trying to understand, well, what are your, what are your pain points? What are your aspirations? What are those things? They're a collaborator in that, in that sense. Um, and it's the, the conversation is the richest when um, I'm, I'm humble and curious and just there to listen. And I'm inviting them to be a part of making a change when they've kind of felt disempowered, unempowered, disempowered, whatever. Like they, they, they haven't really felt like they were in the driver's seat ever. And here's this one little avenue to like, that their experience and their hopes and their, their challenges are gonna help make a change for the better, for themselves hopefully, but you know, the, the world at large. Um, people really, really embrace that. And so I think if you take the role of facilitator instead of like, I don't know, not leader, but like whatever it is, right? Like you you know, try and, try and shepherd the, um, collective power that all the people you're working with have, um, you can you can make a huge difference. You also end up with a lot of influence, right? The guy at the board with the white board marker um, can frame the conversation um, and help you know keep things on track and mitigate you know the, the politics of something. Um, ask the ask the right questions. Sometimes ask the dumb questions that nobody's asked, um, and uh, just just help people get to that state where they're um, beyond ego, um, that they're aligned on the mission, and that. Uh, you know, they feel a sense of team and togetherness. 
um, that's that's a really powerful way to to leverage like the strengths of everybody. You always have your sour places, but you can do things to get. It. I had <laughs> I was doing a project. The company that made cleaning supplies once, right? In back in my consulting days, and there was this one person in the room who just didn't want to get on board. It was like we're brainstorming, right? And they were they were just like, "Oh, this is stupid. We've got the ideas. I've got my Excel spreadsheet. Why don't we just do this stuff?" And I had him on the floor. I'd, I'd gotten like a, a six by six piece of linoleum at the hardware store and put it on the floor of the office, and had him. I said, "Pretend you're the toddler and you're making a mess." And I gave him a bottle of ketchup and a bottle of mustard and some rice or something like that, right? And and then we did this role-playing exercise, you know, like sort of design role-playing thing. And he got so into it. He was making a mess. Was just, everything's mad. And the person who's the mom is trying to clean it up. And, and at the end of it, we kind of realized, man, our, you know, these, these cleaning solutions that we were thinking of didn't help this very real situation. You can use all sorts of wonderfully um, playful, um, introspective, introspective ways of, uh, of exploring spaces and situations um, and, and contexts, um, you know, as a whole bunch of design books and design gurus who can who you know share these things um, it's important to, to give it a try and you have to be a little bit brave because it's always breaking convention especially in corporations you know, but we, we sit in boardrooms with PowerPoint presentations what are you doing with a you know, giant piece of linoleum um, but I think you know we're all human <laughs> even even our colleagues we're all human um, and people can can really get into that and when they see the value of it you build it a little bit at a time um, you you start to inspire folks and that's uh, that's a really cool uh, way to see that um, design thinking growing in an organization when inspiring inspired people are collaborating and then becoming evangelists themselves, um, and and it can kind of you know, ripple out. I think you've inspired quite a lot of people just right now. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so so much, Peter, for the interview. No, it's a pleasure being here. Thanks. <laughs> In a couple of moments, we are going to share with you what's coming in the next episode. But if you think others just like you might enjoy this podcast, help us spread the word. Give us a quick rating, write us a review, or just share with a friend. You've been listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm Karina Paraskeev, your host. It's sometimes difficult to include all of the research resources we used without making the podcast too heavy, so we've created the show notes to give proper credit to all the ideas we've explored. Go check it out to find out more inspiration, and for more episodes just like this one, subscribe to us anywhere where you get your podcasts. Next episode, we are going into uncharted territory. We've heard about genomic medicine, we've heard about design research, and now we're going to shift gears into the pharmaceutical landscape. We'll be accompanied by Didier Jean-François, a McKinsey alumnus and biotechnology pharma executive. That's up next on Healthcare Focus. <laughs>